0: When most people think of space exploration, it's astronauts in gleaming suits that come to mind. Bold adventurers sitting atop towering rockets, or packed into the cockpit of a shuttle, preparing for liftoff. Of course, there's good reason for this. Human explorers have been integral with space exploration from almost the very beginning. Many of them have become celebrities in their own right who doesn't recognize the name neil armstrong but it's easy to forget that a great deal of exploration conducted beyond the atmosphere is not carried out by human eyes but rather by electronic ones robotic probes have been a critical part of space exploration since the first sputnik orbited the earth when telling the story of space exploration it can be easy to get caught up in the crewed missions and focus solely on them. Those parts of the story tend to have the most compelling characters, and it's easy to latch on to the various astronauts and cosmonauts and tell the story as they experienced it. But today, we're going to focus on the unmanned probes which laid the groundwork and blazed the trail to the stars. Welcome to episode 27 of Frontier of Infinity, Electronic Eyes. In the last episode, we covered the flight of Gemini 5, which carried Gordon Cooper and Pete Conrad into space on a mission that lasted almost eight days in total, setting a new record in the process and proving that NASA could pull off a week-long mission, an important milestone on their way to the moon. This week, we're taking a short break from Project Gemini to explore instead the significant uncrewed missions that were launched by the U.S. and the USSR to further their knowledge of the heavens above. We've already discussed quite a few unmanned probes over the course of this show, starting naturally with the first Sputnik, which was the first manufactured object hurled into orbit. Since then, we've covered the early Explorer probes that were launched by the United States, the first Luna probes sent to the moon by the Soviets, and a number of other U.S. projects like Pioneer. Our time frame for this episode stretches from 1961 to 1965. In that time, a few of these projects were continued, and a few new ones got underway. On the Soviet side, Luna was still the main event. Between 1960 and 1963, there were several additional Luna spacecraft that were constructed and attempted to launch, but the first four of these all failed for various reasons, and in keeping with Soviet policy at the time, they were never made known to the public. It was not until April of 1963 that the next Luna spacecraft successfully launched, dubbed Luna 4 for the public. This was intended to make a soft landing on the moon, meaning that it would set down relatively gently onto the surface instead of just barreling in at full speed. However, a successful launch does not a successful mission make, and Luna 4 failed to properly adjust its course and missed the moon. There were two more failed launch attempts the next year, but come 1965, another soft lander was launched though, like Luna 4, it failed to reach the moon. It seemed that, even despite their early successes, the moon was recalcitrant to allow the Soviets to return. A more auspicious failure was seen in Luna 5, launched in May of 1965. Yet another soft lander, this one failed to obtain its mission objective when its retrorockets malfunctioned and it rammed into the moon far faster than anticipated. They managed to hit the mark, but not in the manner they'd hoped. Lunas 6, 7, and 8 came later that year, all with the same intention of making a soft lunar landing. 6 missed the moon completely, and 7 and 8 both malfunctioned, impacting the moon in a similar fashion to Luna 5. Alas, the Soviets were denied a successful lunar probe yet again. But Luna was not the only set of Soviet probes to be launched during this period. There was also the Zond program, which aimed at making investigations of the Earth's nearest neighbors. The first two spacecraft of this series were fired off at Venus and Mars in 1964, but both failed to complete their missions. The third spacecraft was launched at the Moon instead during the summer of 1965 armed with a 106mm camera, as well as a television system equipped for automatic in-flight processing. About 33 hours after launch, it made its closest pass to the lunar surface, drawing within 9,200km, or about 5,700 miles, and photographing as much as 19 million square kilometers, more than 11 million square miles, of the moon's face, including some regions of the far side. This successful lunar flyby was followed by a prolonged period of additional exploration, as Zond 3 continued to transmit from its heliocentric orbit into 1966 before communications were lost. The Zond program would go on into the future, but that's a topic we'll cover in a later episode. On the American side, the Explorer program was still going strong. In fact, Explorer is still an active program to this day, the longest-running space program in history. Modern-day Explorers are used as platforms to launch scientific equipment into orbit at low cost. More than 90 Explorer missions have been flown in all, and there were several to be seen during the first half of the 1960s. Actually there were far too many to cover all of them in detail. So suffice to say that the Explorer program was quite active in placing a variety of scientific instruments in space. Launches during our time frame included Explorer 17, which carried the Atmosphere Explorer A, intended to collect data on the upper layers of the Earth's atmosphere it allowed scientists on the ground to collect almost real-time measurements of atmospheric density using a variety of onboard instruments. These continuous collections meant that the atmosphere could be studied over the course of an unbroken period in time, something that had not been possible before at that altitude. Additional atmospheric instruments were launched by subsequent explorers, sometimes being active in orbit simultaneously to allow multiple parts of the atmosphere to be studied and compared at the same time. Some of the other instruments launched were used to measure radiation levels and types both in and beyond the ionosphere. Other instruments studied the Earth's innate magnetic field, while others were used for geodetic science, or the science of measuring the geometry and spatial orientation of the Earth. There were 27 attempted Explorer launches between 1961 and 1965, only four of which were failures. That's a pretty great record. The Explorer spacecraft were all focused on studying the Earth, but there were other bodies which NASA and the broader scientific community were interested in learning more about, namely the Moon and our nearest planetary neighbor, Venus. To satisfy curiosity about the moon, as well as to help pave the way for the ever-looming Project Apollo, NASA embarked upon the Ranger Program, which would send electronic eyes to the moon for the purposes of surveying and assessing. The Ranger Program was conceived of in blocks, each one containing a number of missions and spacecraft which would achieve a given range of goals before moving on to the next one. There were three of these blocks, each named simply by their number in the sequence. Block 1 Ranger spacecraft were intended to serve as a testing ground for the new system, as well as the newly developed launch vehicle, our old friend the Atlas Agena. These were launched in 1961, but both Rangers 1 and 2 were failures due to some growing pains in the launch vehicle neither one of them were able to establish the orbit needed to become properly stable and to collect enough solar energy to power themselves. Block 1 was mostly a failure, but Block 2 would make a fresh attempt to not only make the spacecraft work, but to actually send a few of them to the moon. The Block 2 Ranger probe was a roughly conical spacecraft bristling with scientific equipment, including a television camera, seismometer, and radiation detection gear. Like the Luna probes of the same day, they were intended to be soft landers, using a system of retro rockets to slow them down so they could gently impact the surface of the moon. Unfortunately, though, they met much the same fate as their Luna counterparts, Ranger 3, launched in January of 1962, missed the moon completely, while its two follow-ups, Rangers 4 and 5, launched later that same year, both suffered malfunctions that saw Ranger 4 splat against the moon in a most unceremonious fashion, while Ranger 5 went whizzing off into space, having missed its mark. So much for Block 2 but the failures of Block 2 didn't discourage NASA from launching into Block 3 regardless. The Block 3 iteration of the Ranger spacecraft was the most potent one yet. Still retaining the conical shape, it also featured a large dish on one side for its high-gain antenna, as well as a pair of solar panels like wings that reached out to either side. Most importantly, though, this new design would carry an improved television suite which would capture and transmit video of the moon as the spacecraft made its approach right up to impact. This would allow the researchers to see the lunar surface in greater detail than ever before, much sharper than even the most powerful Earthbound telescopes. Ranger 6 was launched on the 30th of January, 1964, and while it did successfully impact the moon, an accident in flight disabled the new video system. Not a complete success, but a good sign regardless. Ranger 7 was next in line. It was fired off in July of 1964, and finally saw NASA's hard work and perseverance pay off. Ranger 7 operated beautifully its TV camera rolling the whole way to its gentle touchdown on the moon's face. Its static cameras got right to work capturing thousands of images of the surrounding environment, revealing whole troves of information to the scientists on Earth. Its landing site was in the Mare Cognitum, near Copernicus Crater. Ranger 7's cameras revealed craters of all sorts on the lunar surface, both large and small, sometimes overlapping, with smaller craters pocking the sides and rims of larger ones. They detected ejecta plumes lying on the surface, spread out like digits extending from the edges of some of the craters. This was no kingdom of blown glass, as some NASA engineers had feared. This was a substantial environment on which a spacecraft could definitively land. Buoyed by their success, Ranger 8 was launched in February of 1965. It flew a course over the Oceanus Procellarum and Mare Nubium before finding a landing zone in the Mare Tranquillatus, perhaps the most famous region of the moon today. It took even more pictures than Ranger 7 had, backing up the conclusions which had been drawn from that previous mission. Little did anyone involved with that mission realize that the first crewed lander would come down a mere 70 kilometers or 43 miles from Ranger 8's landing site in just a few scant years. Ranger 9 was quick to follow, landing inside the massive Alphonsus crater, where it captured just shy of 6,000 new images. But these were taken from within a crater, largely shielded from the sun, allowing the spacecraft, and thus the researchers back home, to see in much greater detail the manner in which craters nested within larger craters interacted to sculpt the lunar landscape. The Ranger program had gotten off to a rocky start, and one that seemed to portend doom for the entire project. But the tenacity of the engineers and the scientists who saw it through paid off in spades. NASA finally had good, solid data to work from when designing the landing legs for their upcoming lunar lander. The Rangers had not seen oceans of quicksand or craggy karst valleys that would swallow up a spacecraft. The surface of the moon was manageable. All they had to do was build a spacecraft designed for it. The moon, it appeared, could be conquered. But what about the other worlds that dot our solar system? Most of them are so far away that it was impractical at the time to try to view them up close. But the inner planets, that is Mercury, Venus, Mars, and our very own Earth, were much more readily accessible. NASA had designs to explore them in greater detail after all there was very little known about these planets at the time even though they rest by cosmic standards scarcely a single step away from our own world venus was the first target for a simple reason it's the closest the second planet from the sun appears superficially to be quite similar to our own it's about the same size as the earth and has a thick atmosphere that covers it over That led many thinkers to postulate that it might be very similar to Earth on the surface. If you're a fan of early sci-fi, you'll likely be familiar with a few works depicting stalwart adventurers traveling to Venus to explore the dense jungles and crazy fauna of that world. This idea was not born merely from an overactive imagination. Because of its atmosphere, in which traces of water vapor had been detected, and similar size to Earth it was thought that its nearer proximity to the sun might result in a tropical climate on the surface. Why couldn't such a world harbor teeming life like our own world, but naturally grown to tremendous size and sporting rows of teeth with which to rip and tear into any spacefarers brave enough to step foot on the surface? Don't forget to pack your Smith & Wesson particle beam though not everyone was convinced that Venus would be a tropical paradise. There were some voices, including none other than Carl Sagan from the University of California's Berkeley campus, that the known high concentrations of carbon dioxide in the planet's atmosphere would result in a runaway greenhouse effect, elevating the surface temperatures well in excess of the Earth's warmest regions. The best way to tell whether or not Venus would eventually prove a popular retirement destination was to send a spacecraft there to take a look, and that's precisely what NASA wanted to do with the Mariner probes. This line of spacecraft were intended to perform investigations of all the other inner planets, but Venus was first on the docket, and if any of you would care to look up the first couple of Mariner probes, you'll notice that they bear a striking resemblance to a new friend we just made, the ranger probes. That's because the early mariners were directly adapted from the ranger program. It was a way to save time, money, and design effort. The early mariners were nearly identical to the later rangers, though their scientific suites were altered to better suit the exploration of a planet with an atmosphere as opposed to an airless moon. The probe was equipped with a flux gate magnetometer for measuring a magnetic field, if there was one, as well as a microwave radiometer for measuring temperature of the surface as well as the planet's atmosphere. To assist in this task, two infrared optical sensors were also included. The probe would also carry a few instruments for taking measurements along the way, regarding density of cosmic dust, as well as the composition and nature of the solar wind. Mariner 1 was launched on July 22, 1962, but when the Atlas Agena that served as a launch vehicle careened off course, it was destroyed remotely from the ground. The Mariner program got a second chance with Mariner 2 on August 27. This launch went well, and soon Mariner 2 was on a course for Venus. The voyage out lasted 110 days, during which time the probe sent back information about the environment between planets. A few of the onboard systems malfunctioned along the way, but miraculously healed themselves in flight. On its final approach, one of its solar cells failed, and an excessive buildup of heat on board threatened to scrap the mission. But it managed to remain operable long enough to make a flyby of the target. On December 14th, it skimmed within 22,000 miles, that's approximately 35,400 kilometers, of the Venusian atmosphere. It revealed the surface temperature to be in the ballpark of 300 to 400 degrees Fahrenheit, approximately 149 to 204 degrees Celsius. That more than validated Sagan's runaway greenhouse theory. Not exactly the sort of place you'd want to build a high-end resort. To make matters even worse for the eager entrepreneurs looking to make their fortunes on the Earth's sister planet, the atmospheric pressure was revealed to be more than 20 times higher than that of the Earth at sea level. On top of all of this, the spacecraft detected no magnetic field which would shelter the surface from the sun's radioactive tyrannies. In short, it was hell. At least, the closest thing to hell that we humans had ever found in the cosmos. So NASA got to take home the accolade of being the first space program to discover hell. But in all seriousness, Mariner 2 was a great success, marking the first successful planetary flyby. Unfortunately, the next Mariner, Mariner 3, intended to reach Mars, failed due to a mechanical malfunction. But Mariner 4 was a completely different story. Armed with a suite of cameras, a helium magnetometer, a plasma probe, and the usual instruments for measuring cosmic rays and dust, Mariner 4 set forth on November 28, 1964, making its closest flyby on July 15, 1965, snapping the first close-up photos of the planet ever taken and beaming them back to Earth. These images provided our first glimpse of the red planet up close and would support future exploration efforts. But Mariner 4 wasn't quite done. It outlasted its intended lifespan of eight months and remained active for almost three years, continuing to return data on the interplanetary environment until it finally shut down. It's important that we remember the robotic missions which have paved our way into space electronic eyes have gazed on far more stellar vistas than human eyes have. And while I truly believe that humans will eventually reach most of the places we've sent machines, they will always be the cutting edge, the first pioneers, the trailblazers who show us the way. Next time, we're going to return to the Gemini series and discuss the next mission which will move NASA forward toward a manned landing on the moon. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars.